I suppose it always looks obvious from the outside when a candidate or a minister is just going to have to go. Uh, we ponder why it took so long for Keir Starmer to realise that um, Azhar Ali was not going to be the candidate for Rochdale. Um, that, of course, on the back of having promoted his £28 billion Green Deal, very popular with voters and business and trade unions, and then kiboshed it right down to £4.5 a year. Uh, we try and flesh out what actually that means in terms of lost investment, lost activity. And we look at uh, the, the similar issue for uh, Hamza Youssef, who finally accepted Michael Matheson's resignation, kind of too late. Uh, we look also at the too late situation in Rafa, what will happen now in terms of American pressure on uh, Netanyahu. Uh, we look also at the controversy over the Red Coat Cafe at Edinburgh Castle and much else besides. Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi, chums, and welcome to this week's Leslie Riddick podcast. What a stonking day is outside. The sun's got earlier, and it's almost at the point, if you're still at work, you're not getting up in the dark, and you're not coming home in the dark, which I found to be a, ah, you know, the year is turning. The yeah. geese are the other way. It's, you know, all is well with the world, he said, with a rueful grin on his bus. <laughs> <laughs> yes, agreed. I was off, off at uh, Pilates this morning after first after the interruption and noticed on the ceiling as you're lying on the floor looking at everything. One fly, you know, the oh first fly goodness. of the year. And I thought, <laughs> yes. right, yeah, it's all happening now, isn't it? So, yeah. Yeah, so that's it. It's not. It's not the sound of a. Uh, it's not the first crocus peeping through, or the first snowdrop, or the the first bird's <laughs> nest. It's, I'm looking up there and saying, "How Scottish is that?" Oh, look, there's a flea. There's a flea <laughs> on the ceiling. And that's that. That's that's it. But anyway, that laughing and joking aside, and all that kind of thing, we've got to get stuck in it. No, I really. But the, the thing I've got to have to begin with is just. How much credibility does Sir Keir Starmer's Labour Party now have after this latest and, and biggest U-turn, I think, in all policy strategy that they've had uh, since he became leader, of the, the ditching of that Green Prosperity Plan and its reality, the $28 billion every year until 2030? It was tinkered about a wee bit, wee bit with, and it was going to be, well... It'll be up to 2013. It's not going to be 28 billion now. And now, woof, vanished. The great Soprendo has come along and disappeared it. Mm. Yeah. Um, it, and the thing the thing is, that what's surprising about it is the people that it's brought out of the woodwork. Yes. Uh, folk might, you know, when you hear John McTernan coming on <laughs> the wireless, you're sort of stealing yourself really for some, well, you know, some just blindly sycophantic kind of stuff. Although, to be fair to John, he'd probably say that, um, you know, he sees the same on the opposite side. But, I mean, he came on to, to Newsnight the day after this sort of U-turn and was absolutely bailing. And it's worth just quoting him exactly. He's, if anyone doesn't remember, John was one of the senior advisors to Tony Blair. Mm -hmm. And he said, it's probably the most stupid decision the Labour Party has ever made. Great parties have great causes. If you don't have a great cause, you want to change from this government, sure, but change to what? What's the change Labour now offers? It's very disappointing. 
And, you know, that's just so, okay. Uh, they lined up Ed Miliband, who was the most likely critic mm-hmm. um, to have, you know, said, oh, well, you know, we'll get there eventually. And this is a good start and something like that. But you can't have gone on about 28 billion for the length of time that uh, Keir Starmer has right up to the wire, you know, like the day before the U-turn, pretty much. And the last time we talked about this, you know, we were sort of saying, well, what what's in the list, actually, yes. uh, of stuff? But it's home insulation, offshore wind, grid upgrades, uh, grades, GB Energy, which is supposed to be set up in Scotland, a national wealth fund. Um, now, you know, the thing that's going to fall off the end, first of all, is home insulation. And if you talk to anybody who's involved you know, with green stuff, it, it's, it's the home insulation is the shocker. You know, that's the one that should be just a no brainer to have got done. And again, I feel like I have certainly said this before, but I'm old enough to have sat in the first uh, SNP parliament when Patrick Harvey proposed a blanket uh, insulation project for Scotland which would not, you know, be worried about whether this house was privately owned and that one was on the council and that one was, you know, whatever. Um, it would just do the lot, street by street. That was the important point, street by street, so that it would be methodical, it would be job creation, nah. And uh, so, I mean, I can remember thinking at the time, that's a big miss, and that was 2007. But, you know, this is this, this has been dragging on and on and on. And clearly there's not going to be enough to do the home insulation properly. Never mind. You'd have to go through forensically what else has dropped off the end. Yeah. But you can't have said that it takes 28 billion. And actually, when you, you also begin to look, it sounds like a huge sum. And then pulling it down to four billion sounds, you know, OK, four billion still sounds like a lot. But when you start putting it into sort of perspective, um, you know, there's here's the government spending is one trillion a year. And just to give you an, another example, um, the the national borrowing that happened to mitigate energy bills last year was 75 billion. Yeah. So what we're saying was the proposal was to spend a third of the amount we've had to borrow to mitigate energy bills in a crisis, very largely the product of having not moved away from oil and gas when other sensible countries like Denmark did, a third of that spending a year uh, of, of, of mitigating that is now not going to happen. Yeah. So I mean, it's rubbish. Yeah. I mean, and to take a look at it, a friend of the podcast, the Professor Richard Murphy, said, well, if you want to find the money of labour, I'll show you where to do it. Make capital gains tax the same as income tax, you can raise 12 billion. And if you're thinking about what capital gains tax is, that's the thing that meant that Rishi Sunak recently, I mean, he only paid 20% tax rate on his capital gains. So, I mean, he made 1.8 million, he paid about 360,000, I think, on it, which looks an enormous amount, but it's at a rate of 20%. So make capital gains tax equal to income tax, make it progressive, and you reckon you can get 12 billion out of that. Restrict tax relief on pension contributions, so everyone gets relief at the same rate. You can raise 14.5 billion out of that. Bingo, there's 26.5 billion by actually doing something progressive in terms of, and I think it was Nigel Lawson at one point when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, actually raised uh, the, 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 the capital gains tax. He raised it. 
A Tory chancellor did it. Now, Labour won't countenance that. They say they're not going to tax the wealthy. And this other, the other element, which is, again, taxing the wealthy in the sense of their pension contributions being subject to the same regulations as everybody else, there's $26.5 billion. But it's not even being countenanced, Leslie. It's, 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 it's bizarre. And when you look at what they were doing, uh, and I listened to Mick Lynch talking about this, and it's something that you said as well, which is, yeah, you talked about the 28 billion figure and you then cut it down to what it meant. But it was an incredibly powerful narrative. If Mick Lynch, the way Mick Lynch put it, he said they should have been talking about we're going to create well-paid jobs, new jobs. We're going to have warmer homes, going to cut energy bills and make it actually pertinent to real people's lives and what it was going to do for them. And by the way, it's going to save the planet at a point when we've gone over the 1.5 degree rise in temperature last year, which is the hottest on record. And so why and why now? I think I cannot believe how how economically illiterate it is when you actually get the uh, ex-chief economist of the Bank of England, Andy Haldane, another person along with John McTernan, you hardly think of being rah, 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 and on the left, he says it's going to lead to stagnant productivity, weaker growth. And the next point is, it's actually turning around and saying, as a Labour government, we are not prepared to borrow for capital investment to actually rebuild the economy. We're not prepared to do that. And I think they've backed themselves into a complete corner. And I genuinely don't know why and why now they've done it. Yeah, well, that's that point. I mean, there's a piece that Andrew Ronsley wrote in The Observer on Sunday mm-hmm. that picks that focuses on this. You know, he, he's saying there's never been a larger, more contentious or more excruciating U-turn from Keir Starmer in his time as Labour leader. And, you know, as, as the long list suggests, there would be a few candidates for that. But what he points out is that actually this Green Prosperity Plan was was actually incredibly popular, mm-hmm. not just with, as you say, the business world and trade unions, which is kind of an unusual thing to have got that sort of ticked off in in tandem, but actually with punters. um, And he quotes a recent poll by More in Common, which uh, scored this plan, the Green Prosperity Plan, was one of their favourite reasons for voting Labour. And so what he's saying is Sir Keir has now scuttled his own popular flagship. Now, what that seems to come down to then is that, you know, within the Labour Party, there are different camps. Well, you know, seven, was it seven with the Tories? I was probably seven with Labour. But yeah. two important camps, which are, you know, I feel like the feardies and the kind of less feardies, whatever. Um, and the worry was that Sunak and Jeremy Hunt had already started using this 828 billion mm-hmm. as the beginning of a kind of argument that a Labour government would end up borrowing more or doing higher taxes or both. Now, um, as Andrew Ronsley points out, it was pretty questionable if the Tories were getting any traction from this, mm-hmm. not least because of an utterly atrocious financial record that, I mean, I keep noting down yet more appalling you know, revelations of the amount wiped off pensions and wiped off stuff by still by Liz Truss. So, but what he's pointing out is that the attack was having no discernible impact on support for Labour. But it just feeds the anxieties of people who just remember, you know, the what was it, 1992 with Neil Kirk? Yeah. You know, I can't remember what his, 
<laughs> what that kind of exclamation was that he that he had at his uh, you know groovy conference or, oh, or sort yeah. of celebration thing the night before and it all went Pete Tong. But, uh, you know, there's a very sort of anti-complacency bunch in there, including uh, the guy who has been brought in to be, you know, the, the main campaign manager. And it looks like they have basically won out and just decided we're not giving uh, Chap McSweeney, we're not giving anything to them that they could start, you know, banging around with. And it's ex- it's extraordinary because it's it's just, you know, a, it, it actually feeds into the next thing we'll doubtless be talking about, which is the Azhar Ali kind of situation yes, in Rochdale, yeah, exactly. because it's the same thing there of of kind of yeah, well, you know, this is the the candidate that has finally yesterday been well, the Labour Party suspended his membership. He's still on the ballot paper because he can't take it off. Mm-hmm. Uh, they su- supported him to the hilt because he was the candidate, um, really, uh, when he had said things which were similar to that thing said by other people who have been suspended. And that's the end of it, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, already he'd got this problem of and it all gen- generates from, well, OK, Azar Ali, we'll you know, talk about that. Yeah. Know, what he said was 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 not on for a candidate. But, um, you know, because you've now got this no go area around the whole of Israel, Gaza, the Palestinians and whatever, so nobody can say anything that comes anywhere close to what probably half the country is saying because of Keir Starmer's initial stance, which was to just, back, you know, completely 100 yeah. percent say whatever, uh, you know, Netanyahu does. We are completely in sync with him because uh, anti-Semitism has been completely yeah. obliterated from the Labour Party as if um, Semitism and, you know, the old Labour uh, or anti-Semitism and the new Labour are kind of going hand in hand. You can't be a supporter of Palestinian rights without somehow getting the kind of anti-Semitism thing dangled on you. So it's the same thing. You know, it's this this tremendously shelpit kind of approach where there's if there's anything that they could hook onto you, you walk a million miles round it. Even if the public are in support of movement, even if the world and the Palestinians need you to catch a grip and waken up from this, you will still, for total paralyzing fear of getting connected up with stuff that you feel you can't defend, you will walk right round that long way. Yeah. And what a blooming mess it is, really, all round now. Yeah. I mean, just the, 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 just to cut back to sort of second to the, the Green Prosperity Plan and the and the U-turn there, we were driving along the road a few a few days ago and there was a group of young laddies. Uh, I mean there was a bit of space, so two of the boys sprinted across and managed to get to the other side. Three of the boys stood there and didn't move. They made that decision, but one lad ran halfway into the road and then ran back again and was roundly abused by the boys who stood on the pavement and didn't risk it, and the boys who ran across the road and did risk it. So that's that's your Keir Starmer. He's the laddie that ran in the middle of the road, turned around, panicked, and ran back again. Mm, and that's right. that's that's him. That's him, and he's caught he's caught entirely in that trap. And it was an interesting one because John McTernan uh, was was hauled out. He appears to be the only Labour Party person who's quite prepared to speak about the Azar Alex situation in Rochdale. Now people 
people may or may not know the background to that, but it was deemed to be completely acceptable after an apology uh, that Ali had actually said that Israel allowed the September October attack uh, to go ahead in order to provide a pretext for their invasion of Gaza. Now, I'm just thinking about that. That was the time to suspend them. That was the time to say that candidate should not have been allowed to go forward. And I thought the Labour Party would have been smart enough, Leslie, to realise if if the Mail on Sunday had dropped that shoe, there would be another journalistic shoe waiting to be dropped, which was going to be further revelations once they'd actually backed him. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, out it came. Uh, and... The, the 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 appalling thing that was said that I think is a he should never be like go ahead but then he turned around and said he blamed people in the media from certain Jewish quarters for suspension of Andy McDonald who talked about the uh, a just settlement uh, for Israelis and Palestinians and he did use the sort of the phrase from the river to the sea and that got Andy McDonald suspended but. To actually turn around and say from certain Jewish quarters, man was totally unacceptable. And you've got to question what absolute the vetting process was like to allow him to go through. But of course, McTernan turned around and did the spin, which was, of course, that would have been perfectly acceptable under Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. But we moved on. It's totally unacceptable now. And it is an absolute mess that they've got themselves into over this. And what we now have is the ludicrous situation where three former Labour MPs, Galloway, Danchuk, and uh, three former Labour members, two of them ex-MPs, and Azar Ali, three Labour men now standing. And I just wonder if it actually what's going to come of that Rochdale by-election, but it's going to be an interesting one to watch. Yeah, it's it's weird, isn't it? And then the, the other, not just Andy McDonald, but... Um, another MP, Kate Ozamore, yeah. had the, the whip removed uh, in January of this year after saying Gaza should be remembered as genocide mm-hmm. in a post about Holocaust Memorial Day. But the thing is, I mean, apart from this sort of Jewish conspiracy theory, which is just kind of like that is yeah. rubbish. Um, but, you know, a lot of the rest of this and, and the kind of idea that the Israelis would want to bring on the you know, horrible oh, murder just... of 1,200 of their own people, right? That's, you know, coming, come on. Um, but, you know, the stuff that the kind of, you know, the, the anti-McDonald suspension uh, for just using the, you know, between the river and the sea mm-hmm. until all people, he said, Israelis right. and Palestinians can live in peaceful liberty. I mean, I, I'd have thought probably 80% of Scots would go, yeah, and yep. what? And then what Kate Osamore's thing about Gaza being remembered as a genocide? Yeah. And, you know, he, so this is what, what happens is because you've now reached, you know, a stage where because because of your sort of lily leveredness about the whole situation, um, you know, the, 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 the Azhar Ali thing, I think people will think, yeah, the guy was kind of bang to rights, total puzzles to why he didn't get the same treatment as the others. Yeah. So that annoys, mm. the, you know, the left, if you like. Then, you know, the Jewish community are going, well, well, you know, we thought you'd done the biz, but hey, look, you know, this sort of stuff still gets said. So, yeah, they're annoyed. Um, it just looks complete. I, mean, I can only imagine how annoyed the local Labour activists are in Rochdale mm-hmm. because, you know, they've either lost this seat or they've got a kind of Trojan horse winning it for them, which is rubbish. Um, 
so this that's all pretty rubbish. And apparently, according to the mail, who are obviously having a field day with this and <laughs> and, and and must have timed, you know, they've kept their powder dry till their revelations would result in a, a total uh, nightmare for Labour because they can't withdraw the guy from the ballot paper. That's right. You know, so they've sat and just kept their powder dry till they caused the maximum effort. And this morning they're saying that Labour activists are even considering supporting the Reform Party. This guy, Simon, I'm sure I'll not pronounce this right, Dan Chuk. Yeah. And he was Labour MP in the town, but he was suspended in 2015 for explicit text to a 17-year-old. Mm-hmm. So this is how kind of great this the horizon now is. You've either got George, words fail me, Galloway uh, yep. to vote for, Simon Danchuk with, you know, that past and reform. You know, we could talk. Mm-hmm. You can look at that profile of, of stuff. And yes. it's, it's not it's not any mainstream kind of, you know, party or progressive party there or what? You know, I mean, it's a complete sort of mess there. And we'll keep grabbing headlines. And, the, you know, the funny thing is, it just keeps reminding, Keir Starmer keeps reminding me of a postie who's frightened of dogs. And it's a strange <laughs> thing, because when you're frightened, I've spoken to posties about this, that if you are, if you do have that fear of dogs, it's astonishing how, you know, the lighthouse attracts the storm. You know, you, you end up almost that you, you mm-hmm. will end up having the inevitable tussle with dogs and you will get hyper nervous when even there's just a wee yappy dog that's, you know, a wee yappy dog. So it's almost like the inability to distinguish between a wee yappy dog and an actual threat um, in all these issues, whether it's, you know, the big stuff about the green uh, transition, which the public are now kind of, yep, we just need this to be turned into something that we understand, you know, and that's true for Scot- Scotland with knobs on as well. Um, so they're ready for that, but Braves are Robin ran away. And now you've got this, the whole situation on Palestine, which just ain't going to go away. And it ain't going to go away for a whole load of reasons, but one of which is that the SNP are going to use their next opportunity yeah. to have a motion, which is February the 21st, um, to have another motion attempt to call for a ceasefire in the hopes that they can tease the Labour Party further apart on a conscience issue mm-hmm. like this, with the whole situation have in in you know in Gaza now having reached. I mean, every time you think you've reached just apocalyptic oh, yeah. sort of proportions, obviously we've now got the situation where the two hostages were were retrieved. The Israeli hostages were retrieved from Rafah with 73 people killed, uh, Israel, uh, Palestinians killed in the process. Um, and Netanyahu saying, yep, it's all guns blazing, we're going in. I, I actually get to a stage where there's two things that sort of mean that I just generally don't listen to the news for a while. One is any, whenever the anything to do with the royal family is kind of prominent, because you will get, you know, you will get mm-hmm. just sort of hours of, of, of sort of empty speculation and the other is when you've got the Israeli Defence Force spokespeople on because I can manage about a couple of 10 seconds but there's something about as soon as they get into just ignoring again the fact that they're killing Palestinian civilians and children and babies you you know it's it's the way that they 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 just get almost incandescent with rage that they're even being asked Mm -hmm. and I can't watch this anymore I mean, I can absolutely, you know, just if it needs to be kept being said again, what happened was a war crime by Hamas that started this off. 
but here we are now, 28,000 dead, and we're waiting for what would be, you know, pretty much a genocide to happen if the Israelis invade Rafah and flatten it with mm-hmm. people having nowhere to go, the border staying shut because the Egyptians don't want them. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's just what, what? Uh, there was a, David Pratt was on uh, Scotland Tonight last night, a very useful analysis as ever, and was pointing out that he doesn't think this is utterly imminent, partly because so many battalions of the Israeli Defence Force have actually been deployed to the border with, um, uh, suddenly forgotten which border that's gone to actually, uh, but they're not in the vicinity. There's another uh, detachment that are deployed elsewhere. And so it's it's not they haven't got the full forces basically yeah. assembled, ready to do something imminently. So there is time for for you know for international opinion, and it comes down to the states really. I mean, yeah. it would be nice if Lord you know Lord Cameron grew a backbone, but you know that's not going to happen. So it all really does hinge on Joe Biden now. And, yeah. you know, we've heard all the kind of obviously deliberately leaked remarks that he's kind of just, you know, described Netanyahu as an asshole. But, you know, in public is still they're still in the process of voting money for weapons. Through. Exactly. So until you get to the stage where the weapons money is going to stop and the Republicans have connected up the weapons for Ukraine, Israel and, uh, you know, certain border movements. Yeah as part of their quid pro quo. So politically, it's very hard to pull out that bit of spending. But, uh, you know, in that case, the diplomatic statements that that the Americans are making have just got to be so much harder uh, on on Israel because there's time now and everyone knows there's just a little bit of time and it will be on all all the Western powers that just look the other way now. If the same happens to Rafa, that's happened to, you know, just about everywhere else in Gaza. So, yeah. Yeah, well, that that was this morning. I I, I don't know if you heard him. Uh, Sir Richard Dalton, the yeah. former consul down in Jerusalem, ambassador to Libya, ambassador to Iran. No lefty. It was Sir Richard Dalton uh, checking in his background. He was actually a prospective. He was going to be a Tory candidate in Richmond, North Yorkshire, but withdrew because his sister-in-law was Sarah Keyes, who then had the the affair with Cecil Parkinson. And he was absolutely scathing in terms of coming right out and saying about war crimes, about uh, collective punishment about the refusal of the UK government to, to recognise the, the ICG rulings. He was talking very, very clearly the only way, as you said, to put pressure on the Israeli government to actually cease was to actually stop the aid that was going there. And as you said, it is a complicated situation because the the bill that's going through, I mean, I, I can never figure out these uh, US bills that have things tacked onto them all over the place. Um, but the, the, the border bill has got this tacked on and Trump has come, turned around and said to Republicans for his own political reasons, he doesn't want this border bill to go through because he doesn't want an effective border border controls to take place, even though it's what the Republicans want, because if it does go through, it will negate his campaign strategy for the presidential election. So that's all still up in the air there. But I thought Dalton was absolutely excellent in terms of placing the responsibility firmly and clearly on those governments who continue and always support Israel no matter what. And that's Mm. no matter what. The the other thing that that, that, that with this, because when you refer to anti-Semitism, I don't know if you've been following what's been going on at the University of Leeds, uh, where Hilary Benn, 
from Labour, uh, Robert Halfin, uh, the University's Minister, Conservative University's Minister, have stepped in and condemned what they declare to be anti-Semitic incidents and anti-Semitism, which they claim is rife at the University of Leeds. And it, it focuses on this Rabbi Zechariah Deutsch, who took leave in November to serve with the IDF in Gaza. What he then did, and this seems to be a particular practice of IDF soldiers, started posting videos of himself and selfies saying Israel was acting with utmost morality and good ethics, destroying evil while dealing with the civilians of Gaza, and I like this phrase, in the best way possible. Now, apparently he's gone into hiding now because, because of death threats, and if he's received those, that's absolutely appalling. But what they claim to be anti-Semitic incidents, I, I took a look at this. Uh, there were two bits of sprayed graffiti on the Hillel House Centre, a Jewish uh, centre uh, for Jewish students, which said Free Palestine and IDF off campus. And the other seemed to be Free Palestine, anti-Zionist posters and placards. And I'm thinking to myself, have we now got to the point that you cannot be anti-Zionist, you cannot believe in not slaughtering Palestinians, and that makes you automatically anti-Semitic, and that's despite the fact that not all Jews are Zionists, not all Zionists are Jewish, and there are significant numbers of Jewish intellectuals, activists and ordinary people who are coming out completely against the actions of Israel in Gaza. But yet, if you now say you are anti-Zionist, you now believe in a free Palestine, are we now all de facto anti-Semitic? It just seems to be an appalling way to behave in the sense it's downplaying the absolute pernicious anti-Jewish racism that does actually exist. By by doing that, by conflating these two, yeah, and and actually, there's a you know there's a story also that um, there is a, a a slate of independent challengers to Labour uh, being yes. formed to to stand in the next general election. Now you know this this is uh, people have just fed, got fed up having any sort of attempt to try to change Keir Starmer's position on this. Um, and uh, apparently, you know, there's there's a uh, one MP has said that the funds that are being uh, raised at the moment are substantial and should cause concern amongst colleagues with large Muslim populations. Um, and also that there's a significant share of voters willing to back a candidate to the left of Labour so that what's beginning to happen is a conjunction of uh, Muslim populations uh, left kind of areas that are mm -hmm. unhappy with, well, you know, just read the list uh, of everything else and are thinking of having independent candidates. I mean, one's already been installed to stand against your favourite man, Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting yes. in Ilford, Ilford North. And there's a big fund uh, fundraising campaign underway to back that candidate. But, you know, there's there's more. Uh, there's a new website, uh, themuslimvote.co.uk, that's directing Muslim voters to back a slate of locally approved candidates. Um, and uh, the thing is that they won't, you know, they're not probably going to, uh, that they're focusing on places where they can actually influence the outcome. So they're trying to be a bit canny about it. But, you know, they're very unlikely to win a seat, but by gum, they could actually cause problems for Labour in the midst of it all. And just, just, just on that, um, that same article is looking at uh, the likelihood that the SNP's vote um, next week might well be getting a lot, you know, some more support from mm -hmm. Labour. 
I mean, last time round, um, Jess Phillips resigned uh, yeah. over this. But uh, they're noting that a couple of MPs have changed their position in the wake of the original vote. Uh, you know, John Cryer didn't vote, didn't back the SNP. But after that, wrote to constituents saying we must now call for a ceasefire. And quite a few shadow ministers held a recent meeting with the Palestinian ambassador in the UK. So, you know, this behind the scenes, this is all really, you know, this is not going to kind of calm down at all. Uh, and in, in 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 the opposite seems to be happening in that, you know, sort of the, the people are beginning to coordinate themselves because it's an election year to find a way to put the pressure where it always hurts, which would be alternative candidates. Yeah. And I think it's uh, I, I think uh, it's Andrew Feinstein, who was uh, uh, an ANC uh, representative in South Africa from a Jewish background and whose family were, were remarkable in their anti-apartheid throughout, that, throughout the, the time of the apartheid regime, is now going to be standing against Sir Keir Starmer. And I just find it interesting, you know, I just wonder what impact, I mean, I noted the, the, the latest one that I saw was Ian Murray uh, being questioned at a Labour Party meeting by people who were asking about his stance, did he still stick to his stance as you be immediate ceasefire, despite the fact they hadn't voted for an immediate ceasefire. And uh, I thought, thought the reply was telling, uh, you're spoiling the evening for people. Mm. And I thought, yeah, well, that, that's, that's, that's what it comes down to. And on a slightly lighter note, I note that, uh, if there can be a lighter note on this, that Stephen Pollard, the ex uh, editor of the Jewish Chronicle was still an advisor for them. He tweeted that he'd been on date he'd been since he was divorced, he'd been on dating sites and he noted there'd been a recent explosion of Palestinian flags and profiles saying no Zionists. And uh, what he said that this was that this was of course the fact that we all know that no Zionists means no Jews. These are dark times. So spare a thought for Stephen Pollard. He's not able to get a date because people take an objection to his stance in support of the genocidal Israeli government. Poor wee Stephen. Well, it, you know, there'll be a, there'll be an event likely earlier than that in that uh, it's the Scottish Labour Party's annual conference on Friday, mm -hmm. Friday to Sunday this week. Um, I, I'd imagine, you know, that there should there always is a speech by the party leader, and uh, already there's been. So, you know, suggestions that there will be quite a lot of uh, picketing yeah. and boycotting of that going on. So, I mean, this is just where you're you're just you're out of time. You're wrong. And this will just continue to hound you until you, you know, until you admit you've made a mistake and you've got pretty much until next next Wednesday when the yeah. SNP motion comes to sort of try and figure out something that just doesn't sound the most mealy mouthed yeah. rubbish, basically. Yeah. Right, it's all the R's this week because a, a reshuffle took place this week uh, after the resignation of uh, Michael Matheson as the Health Secretary and uh, Eleanor Whittam, I think it is, who um, stepped down because of post-traumatic stress, uh, which which led to the, the charmer Rachel Hamilton uh, tweeting most inconsiderately, and I thought appallingly about oh, another one bites the dust, which I thought, yeah, there you go. That, that, that just says it all. And you often, again, you keep thinking to yourself how people can actually be that way about someone who has actually come out and said, look, I do have, I've got significant mental health problems and then let's put the boot in. So what, what's your perspective on the, uh, on the, on the changes, Leslie? 
Well, you've, you've got to, to be fair, this is another one, you know, the, the Michael Matheson situation was another, that was a misjudgment by yep, Hamza Yusuf, absolutely. just totally, uh, and really out of sync, you know, with, it's, it's, it's interesting in the midst of all this, to have had during the COVID inquiry, a focus on the moment uh, where uh, Catherine Calderwood mm-hmm. screwed up, basically the chief medical officer by going to her second home at a time when nobody was allowed to leave their, you know, council areas. Um so, you know, that's and she she actually took one day to change her mind about that. And even that was the subject of quite a lot mm-hmm. of agonizing over why did you take so long and whatever one day, you know, and in the end, she was persuaded that, yeah, she just couldn't you couldn't have that. So, I, I mean, the Michael Matheson situation from the beginning was just one that there was no way that was going to, to wash with people. Yeah. So, uh if we're being fair is fair if we're kind of having a go at Keir, uh, Keir Forbes <laughs> Keir Starmer uh, you know for, <laughs> yeah. for kind of a dreadful yep. bit of dithering uh, on Azhar Ali then there was a dreadful bit of dithering mm-hmm. with Michael Matheson um, nothing good's coming going to come out of this because obviously now there's just a lot of talk about whether he should get the, the golden cheerio of 30,000 yeah. 13,000 or something I've got to say, you know, like when you listen to people, they say, well, he's been a good minister. And I mean, this is a key point. How do you know when someone's been a good minister or a bad minister from a distance? It's really very hard to know. I I think and we've said this, you know, talked about this before, but there's far too much in a way. There's far too much credence given to someone's levels of articulacy and visual perkiness. Yes. So uh, what (laughs) happens is, you know, perky, perky people who talk a good game are good ministers. So, uh, for example, Kate Forbes and her omission from the cabinet um, is back on the news again because Kate absolutely was, uh, you know, was seen as a very safe pair of hands on the financial side. I haven't spent a lot of time scrutinising that. She did pick up the brief with no notice well, whatsoever when Derek yeah. Mackay was off skied and made a big fist, a good fist of it. But partly that was because patronisingly, a lot of people thought that a woman wouldn't manage. So it's hard to know at any distance how you would assess someone um, at the risk of making a sort of deviation too far. You know, Joe Biden's in the same boat because, you know, Joe is Joe Biden. That report that came out earlier this week that basically said they were not going to prosecute him for having taken papers that he shouldn't have had Mm -hmm. because the jury would never convict him because they'd look at him and think he's a bit of a dozy 85 year old or whatever it is that couldn't basically remember where he'd put stuff which was Mm. you know like i mean god if that's your get out not good and you know much much written about how devastating that was for joe biden actually that that was far more uh, sort of, yeah, he, he, the jury would see him as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. <laughs> right. Jeez. OK. With friends like these. But, you know, meanwhile, behind the scenes, uh, the Biden administration has produced, uh, you know, what is described as an economic recovery. Yep. That's the envy of the world. Their real terms GDP growth has been three times that of the UK. Employment's robust. Inflation's been addressed. And they've done this massive investment in the green uh, mm-hmm. transition, which is utterly humongous and was the one which Labour had had sort of pegged themselves with, yeah. which is another unfortunate thing for them, because, you know, that investment programme is still going on in the States. And it just so obviously that has kind of worked, you know. So, I mean, there was a point where Biden in the midst of of, of a he he held a press conference after this uh, report 
and and unfortunately then mixed up head of state's oh, name God, with somebody yes. else, right? Yeah. Um, and actually behind the scenes, now you see, I can't even remember which was which. So there you are. Why are you listening to this podcast, people? You know, I can't remember proper nouns. Uh, but some uh, an observer had commented that actually Biden well understood the, the the kind of territories he was talking about. I think he mixed up the president of Egypt and Mexico because he'd been in the midst of very detailed negotiations, actually, with about mm-hmm. Egypt. But he jumped up and basically said, I know what the hell I'm doing. I put this country back on its feet. So the thing is, you know, wh- wh- how do you assess that? Yeah. You know, when, when you've got somebody, you know, the, the commentators are pointing to, a failure by the chief secretary to the treasury, Laura Trott. Yep, I you got to, you know, who, mm-hmm. who, um, who basically couldn't grasp that her own government spending plans won't yep. reduce the country's net debt by the end of the next parliament. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there was a excruciating minute in the PM programme when Evan Devin, Davis, who's not, you know, he's a, I mean, it's friends of mine who can't listen to him because they find him far too sort of, you know, hail fellow well met and circumspect and so on. Mm-hmm. But actually had to say to her, um, you know, the, the, don't you understand this? <laughs> yes. And she she basically said, I think I need to have the figures. I've got different figures, which I think we just need. To, yeah. Mm. So, you know, that, so is she good because she sort of probably looks pretty together? She's 39. She's not old, uh, you know, whatever. Or you've got a guy who's worked as a real team player behind the scenes and has basically swung in really ambitious stuff that seems to have worked for the States. But he will get called Sleepy Joe to the end of his time, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I have now forgotten where this all came in. Cabinets oh. reshuffles in Scotland, I. Yeah. So Michael Matheson, fuck ends, honestly. Yeah. But I don't see, seriously, people are paid enough. I don't see why anybody gets a golden goodbye. Yes. You yeah. know, I mean, and yeah. some people are sort of saying, if you've kind of had to resign or whatever like that, then you should forgo all these things. I just don't see why people are paid to, to go in the first place myself. You know, but it would be I would have thought it was a, a blooming smart thing on his part if he just forego went that. Yes. And it's nothing yeah. to do with the logic of it and the whether it's oh. fair and all that kind of thing. It's just now the the optics, basically. Yeah. And I mean, to uh, it's one thing that uh, McTernan said uh, when he was talking uh, about various other matters, I think, uh, when he said that uh, in situations such as the Rochdale one, uh, get the facts straight act quickly and i think that's that was it was politically politically incorrect of hamza yusuf and politically incorrect of michael matheson not to nip this in the bud and get it sorted and yes i do know that douglas ross forgot the thirty thousand pounds he earned by running the line at various football matches i get that i do so there you go that's that line there and that will make not one jot nor tittle of a difference Mm. to the way this is represented in the media. That's it. Then, Forget ha- it, folks. Ha- having come to the rest of it, um, I mean, Neil, Gra- Neil Gray was, you, you know, Hamza Yusuf's campaign manager. Yeah. Um, again, everybody who knows him say he's, you know, seems to be a very safe pair of hands and has stepped up to health. Now, to just completely contradict myself, just to prove that I'm a real human being, <laughs> I think the, the thing is, though, that you do need to be able to have some skills of communication yes. because they are such... You know, they do create such a powerful um, kind of image. Well, they're just powerful. Communication is powerful. And Neil's slightly doing head down. I'm going to get a doing. I'm just going to, you know, I'm not going to say anything in particular. I'm just going to get through this, come out the other end, and I won't have, I won't have screwed up. And it's not enough. 
you know, um, if, if you're going to do health, and I appreciate this all was very sudden, but, you know, the, the object is to become somebody who people think, oh, good, this is somebody that, you know, we almost look, look forward to hearing um, because you've got a real job to do to try to explain where you're going with health and to kind of come up with stuff like, you know, we, there have to be reforms. Yes. Right. OK, fine. And again, yeah. one day into the job, you're allowed. But, you know, from here on in, there needs to be a shape to what this is, you know, what reforms this needs to be. Mm-hmm. And um, I think in the pre- you know, in previous roles, I don't think I think the same thing's been true for Neil. So I just wish all of them would just learn to be a little bit more. Imagine you're talking to your mum. I mean, you can't talk in these kind of, you know, my mum would do, would have dozed off within 30 seconds of that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, you know, it's it's always useful to have a kind of a mum who doesn't conceal her sleeping abilities if you're not lively. <laughs> right. It teaches yeah. you very early yeah. on <laughs> that you need to kind of be a, a bit of a colourful speaker to keep most people on board. And that involves analogies, you know, stuff that yes. you thought out that really are powerful sort of analogies, turns a phrase a bit of stuff, something that makes you feel a bit normal, just just lots of these things. Um, so I would say for the whole cabinet, this is fine, but nobody can assess whether you're good, bad, indifferent, or anything else as individual cabinet members. It's basically, how, it is, I'm afraid, how you present and how cleverly you've thought of how to turn complex, abstract things into stuff that can animate people when they hear you. Yeah. Well, I mean, in in in, in defence, he did sometimes say, yeah, I'm going to consult with trade unions, officials, health service staff. I mean, good. And he did make the point that, and in saying in terms of Michael Matheson and what went on beforehand, haven't lost a single day of strike action compared to anybody else in the UK. So well done on that. I'll be intrigued to see how Jim Fairley, who comes from a farming background, does as Minister for Agriculture and Connectivity. And he's a... yeah. Yep, and that'll be. He's a, he's a, he's a, I think he's a good guy, and I mean, people are looking at this in the sort of, you know, he was an ally of, he is was, I don't know, an ally of Kate Forbes, yeah. and of course, the big question for everyone was, why is Kate Forbes not in at health? And I mean, there's probably a point where I think most analysts have just thought, you know, the time if you were going to bring her back to the cabinet was right at the beginning, um, and now it probably would look a bit weak because she has pretty consistently been critical of a lot of policy, so uh, you know. It's fine. Who knows whether she was asked, not asked. I mean, given that she was asked to do something that looked like it was right up her street and doofed it the first time, yep. which yeah, was the, you know, yeah. the rural affairs stuffy, you wouldn't yeah. want to go through. And, it, you know, people would have found out. In fact, she's the kind of girl who would have told people, you know, so you wouldn't want to have that all over the place again. I mean, if she's not up for it, then you've got to get on with, you know, your own posse and developing your own your own team. So that sort of seems fair enough. Yeah, so we'll move beyond three hours, I think, now, probably into four hours. And red coats, which is uh, set the hair's coursing, which is the decision uh, by the, the powers that be uh, to run the, the restaurant cafe at Edinburgh Castle. Oh, there was one other thing I was going to say, though, about, oh, right. uh, about Jim, Jim uh, because Jim had kindly offered to, to actually put the Denmark film on in Holyrood, because every oh, event right. I've been at, and I've, I kind of did another one, Glasgow and Greenock, in the last couple of days. This, the first MP was there, uh, Ronnie Cowan in Greenock. And that's for about 14 events. There's not been an MP or MSP at them. So 
Jim had sort of decided he would try to put something on in Hollywood. And, you know, I think I may have mentioned it was also being quite kind of firm that if there wasn't a sign up by about two thirds of the SNP group, it wasn't going to happen. That's the kind of guy I like, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm not wanting to trail yet another blooming place uh, <laughs> to discover there's three people sitting there, you know. Uh, but sadly, because he's become a minister, you can't organize you can't organize events right. when you're a minister. So uh, if there's any MSPs listening to this, uh, it would be kind of nice if somebody else could just step into the into the void there and just keep this ball rolling. Because I'm not trying to do these films for the good of my health, you know, which clearly no. is clearly wouldn't work anyway. <laughs> exactly. Right. You know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, please. Come on. Yeah, and it's another R just sprang to mind before I go back to the Redcoats, is revenue. Because these, these films are selling out all over the place, Leslie, they're doing really brilliantly well. And a major assumption may be made by many people who will throw accusations about willy-nilly on social media that you must be uh, coining it in uh, and uh, earning lots of money from all these these movies and these showings and, and all these places. Yeah, uh, yes, this is not <laughs> not the case. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, some places are kind enough to sort of split the box office after the hire of the venue has been done. Um, but some places are, you know, are just giving me basically the petrol money or the travel money to get there. Um, and it, you know, can take a day or two days to get places. So this, it just, it no way covers. And it, it took, it's taken months to basically be able to piece this sort of schedule together. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's fine. Uh, and, and actually when you produce something, the, the most wounding thing would be for it to just sit there, not, not mm-hmm. being watched. But I mean, absolutely there is there. Yeah, this is, I wouldn't even say lost leader. This is just, I did it. I yeah. think it's worth seeing. And, you know, so I'm just going to go whatever the situation and however the, however the finances have been worked out. But it's not, it certainly isn't uh, washing its face as a proposition. <laughs> you just put it that way, you know. Yeah, let's just put that out there. Back to the Redcoats row. I mean, that's, yeah, that, this alliteration has got to stop, Joyce. And I think it, um, number one, I mean, how cloth-eared is it? You know, on, on any level, for someone to think it was it was appropriate to name a cafe or restaurant at Edinburgh Castle the Redcoat Restaurant. I mean, it's almost like my nipping over to Dublin and saying, "Well, I'm starting this this terrific this terrific new uh, upmarket restaurant um, at Kilmeadham Jail, and we're going to call it the Black and Tan." What you Egypt? You know, that's my perspective on it, and there is more to it than that, anyway. But let's get your initial reactions to the. To the decision before we go on to the historical aspects of it. Yeah, it's inter- it's been an interesting discussion this one actually because it seems that that, that I have I say I haven't been into Edinburgh Castle for quite a while, uh, but it's been called the Redcoat Cafe since 1992, and there's another building within it oh, called right. the Jacobite Gallery. So you know it's 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 I think it was being renovated and it was basically going to be recalled the Redcoat Cafe. Now here I should have looked in more detail. But it has been called that for some time. So it's only that it's come to people's notice that it's been that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that would possibly be, you know, the only time, to be honest, you only, you know, if you've got visitors, you'll you'll summon the energy to, you know, hurl up the the drop to kind of take them around. So probably the last place that most ordinary Scots get to is actually Edinburgh Castle. So far ends. But I mean, there was a very good. I mean, Tom Devine has come out and has pointed, mm-hmm. you know, pointed out that a lot of Scots were actually in the yep. Redcoats, if you want to put it that way. 
Um, which, you know, of course, that if you want to dig deeper in it is another source of this is not to kind of get involved in false consciousness. People made decisions and did what they did. Um, but, you know, at, at a stage post Culloden, when your language was proscribed and banned, where wearing the kilt was banned, uh, where play, playing the pipes was banned um, and where land had been confiscated from yep. all its previous owners, the clan chiefs. Um, those who were on the wrong side of the, you know, Culloden, um, the only way you were going to get employed, actually, ironically, was being employed by the same army that had killed mm -hmm. your parents, pretty much, killed your dad. Um, and so, you know, yes, there would end up being uh, the, the progeny of people who had been Jacobites, absolutely, um, were, were, were taken into the armed services and, and, if you like, then became part of regiments that would be called redcoats. Um that doesn't really get away from the, you know, prevailing understanding of the red coat. In, and you'd have to say as well, I mean, everybody's dancing around the fact that blooming Outlander has got a lot to do with this. Because um, if you've been watching this and you haven't, but you're just nope. a bit exceptional, Pat, Aye. you know, half of humanity has been watching the red coats being, you know, and, and again, in that portrayal, they're not all baddies. You know, the people that save Jamie regularly are red coats. He, he, however, at, at the very end, and he ends up wearing the red coat um, because he's put into a situation that that makes it very difficult for him to to live, actually, if he's not basically trying to do the government's bidding when he moves to America. So all of this stuff is portrayed in great detail of the decisions people were having to make to duck and weave through the prevailing powers that be. And the power was Hanoverian, and mm -hmm. you just had to deal with it. Now, um, I still don't wouldn't want to go to anything called a red coat cafe, you know, Perfect. because for, for most people, despite, you know, the subtlety that's been played into that long series, which is, I think, on series seven, a or eight, eight or something. So that's a lot of stuff's been gone through. And everybody who's watched that will have gone through it and said, OK, yeah, sometime the Scots were backstabbing bams. You know, sometimes they the red coats were charitable. But over the piece, you know, the, the history is one where there was, you know, there was a genocide after Culloden. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to, if you to, to just kind of say, oh, well, you know, I was listening to a, a discussion on Radio Scotland where one presenter sort of gone, oh, well, it's just so hard to get a name that doesn't offend somebody. And you just think, mm -hmm. I don't know. You know, if you had people involved in that and kind of, you know, were descended from this, this is not just a kind of on the one hand, on the other hand stuff. Yeah. At the point, the difference obviously being with Ireland is there's a resolved history. The yeah. winners get to write history and this yeah, is not resolved in Scotland. Yeah. So we're still sitting as as basically a country with two histories and it, totally exemplified by this sort of situation that Edinburgh Castle has found itself in. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you, you know, I think I think that's they need to rethink that one um it's too for most people it's too readily connected um now with a situation post culloden and as yeah. mary pittock mentioned on radio scotland this morning it also too closely mirrors the enduring political difference uh, at the moment which is still about whether or not scotland is an independent country or not minus the violence so, yeah. uh, you know, it's it's there's plenty of things he suggested a black watch cafe or, a, you know, any of the regiments that you wanted to pick up. Uh, just just avoid this, I would yeah. say. 
Yeah. And I mean, it, it was a, an interesting one because my, my, my family, both in Ireland and in Scotland, were members of the armed services, but in the army, because that was the way out of the, that was a way out of uh, poverty, both rural and uh, and urban poverty. And Tom Devine did say it, it conjures up an image, bloody images of Culloden and the slaughter of the clans. And what it does actually suggest a quick thing here is about the mythology that the Jacobites were entirely a Highland Gaelic-speaking army. They weren't. I mean, there were large numbers of Northeastern, Lowland Scots, there were Franco-Irish, there were English who served in the Jacobite army. So, of course, everything's more complex than that. And just on a personal basis, I was in a rather good play by Borderline Theatre when I was a, a much younger man, where I played a, a Lowland Scot recruit, Redcoat, and it was the story of this lowland Scot who'd been recruited into the, the Redcoat army uh, and uh, fought at Culloden. So, yeah, that was a, it was a particular, it was a, and quite a lot of research went into that and the analysis that, again, we, we did as performers. And that that's the one that came back to me there about the mythology there. Mm -hmm. But again, every country lives on myths. But what these myths do is disguise the reality of more complex, complex situations. And if anyone thought that we're going to get away with uh, not mentioning local government reform. We had Professor uh, John Gallagher uh, of, uh, uh, is it Scotland's, Scotland's Future, is it? I can't remember um, the, the, the precise name of it. Uh, it's Our Scottish Future. Our Scottish Future was on Radio Scotland this morning talking about uh, devolving powers uh, because Scotland was an, an entirely over overly centralised nation in terms of its local government. And lo and behold, guess what he was proposing? <laughs> yeah, I, I've been actually looking for this because uh, yeah, there's a point, there's, an, there's a point actually about this, about who gets to get on the news, you know, because, uh, I mean, think tanks like Commonweal are regularly putting out stuff, mm -hmm. uh, reports and whatever, and I don't see them getting picked up, you know, as quickly mm -hmm. as this when they don't get I haven't uh, and maybe I haven't searched well enough but I haven't found this actually anywhere Correct. in the I press. I couldn't find it either. Right so bizarre right that you just I don't know you send something directly to the BBC and you just get on so mm -hmm. nice one. It's not even um, on our Scottish Futures website. Well it's utterly weird then really in fact I must ask the National to have a wee look at that but still because I, I you know I'd just like to know some more detail because this is like what? I mean, he starts off saying, yes, Scotland's too centralised. Join the queue, matey. You know, there's now an orderly queue of people who've finally <clears throat> woken up to what some people have been ranting all about for <laughs> 10 years. Um, and absolutely, that's that's true. Um, he says Scot the Scottish government should devolve powers to towns and cities and then suggests that they could clump together to become combined authorities and suggests that the mistake in 1991, when the last yeah. uh, sort of reforms were made, was to have too many local government units. Now, this is like utterly gobsmacking because, I mean, you know, again, please forgive me, people, because, you, I mean, geez, you guys have been super served by this rant. <laughs> right. But we have got the smallest number of local authorities pro rata, you know, per head of population in the world bar Korea. So 175,000 is our average local council. 10,000 is the EU average. 
We are way, way out of kilter. So what he's looking at, and this would make you very worried, actually, about the, the sort of perspective of Labour in all of this, because this Scottish future thing is the Gordon yeah. Brown think tank, um, is that there's, there's two areas where you might say that there's problems. One he's identified is that there's city regions which basically mm-hmm. are not quite large enough to do essentially planning. And that's his, you could clump up to become combined authorities. That's what in any other normal language and, you know, going back to the future. And Jim, you're old enough to remember it, Maha. And I'm just sort of not being funny because, you know, we're of an age. But it's called a regional council. Yes. Okay, that's what it's called. And then at the other end of things, we have nothing down where the, you know, the buttercups grow. We've got nothing (laughs) down where people are. We've got no local, genuinely local councils at all. So, you know, is there no concern about that? Because if there is no concern about that massive democratic deficit right down at the kind of, you know, grassroots, we're just looking at, you know, just wave goodbye people. Because what he's suggesting is that, you know, we would end up with a city region on the Clyde that would be Glasgow. And then you take in, you know, the other authorities, maybe Dundee, Angus, you know, they would take in that. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is unbelievable. We'd then be off the planet in terms of not having any local government. And that the horror of it is he wasn't even asked. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the sort of level of people just thinking, yeah, we've just got this far too much duplication and we could just have one big slipper and, you know, like just one election and never mind, it's just duplication and. And just in case these thoughts are going through your mind, let me just say that what happens in Norway when they have got 400 councils to R32 is that the head of education is a part time teacher. <laughs> let that roll around. Yeah. What would have happened if the head of the post office had been a part time postie? Yeah. The next thing is that um, there's clumps of po- portfolios held by one person. So one person in a small authority that maybe has. 5,000 people in it, there's one person who is head of planning, housing and roads, and they get paid a normal salary, not 150,000 quid. The next thing is that councillors don't get paid because when you can get home at night, you can actually have meetings in the evening. So you can have a day job and get home at night and that loses you 16,000 quid a year, which is what councillors get paid. Now, those are just some of the things that happen um, and they work. They've worked for you know, for century, basically, in our ne- one of our nearest neighbours, and nobody's interested. So there's a group of us who are interested and are putting an event together for later this year that will look at 25 years of the Scottish Parliament. Did we get what we were promised? And we were promised decentralisation. No, we didn't. And we're trying to put together having a citizens' assembly to go through the current situation, mm-hmm. reveal exactly how shite it is, take evidence from other countries, come up with a template that can work and advocate it at the end of it so that we go into the years moving towards the Scottish Parliament elections with a basically prototype established by people. That's what we're doing. Are you interested, Jim? Mm. No, what Jim's interested in, I definitely got the smell of it, was UK government control over expenditure in Scotland by bypassing Holyrood. That's what I got out of it. And that's that's that that's the thing. It was very, very interesting. And then suddenly went, I get where you're coming from, Jim. But again, that's I think you're absolutely right. That's what to expect if that's the think type. But again, back to that whole point, 
I, I am open open to questioning on this. But I went into the, to their website, could find a news and any of the event, nothing at all to do with this. So God alone knows how it got in there and uh, who decided it was it was going to be there. But this is the this is the eight hundred second episode of the Leslie Reddick podcast, and it's thanks to Jenny Oliver. Thank you, Jenny, who was the person who noticed two weeks ago that we that you had passed eight hundred episodes. I'm up to about three hundred and sixty odd, which is which is a mere bagatelle in comparison <laughs> to your good self. Uh, so thanks to Jenny for for pointing that out. And we as we, we all say, we really should thank everybody you know who does make this podcast possible. The the way we've gone about it and the changes that have taken place and all the other things that we're able to do because of subscribers and just a wee thank you and I'm going to have to be terribly formal here because uh, these are just half a dozen of the newest subscribers that have, that have joined us either pals or or buddies in the in the past four or five weeks and I'm going to have to be formal as I say because uh, here we go thank you to Blair Montgomery Mrs G Blair J C English John Proctor, EJ Glancy, and DJ Webster. Thank you very much. We we greatly appreciate you your coming on board, and and thanks to everyone who subscribes. On on that, look at the weather outside. I'm itching to get the edit done. You're itching to do your video. <laughs> we will see you next week, chaps. <laughs> <laughs>